This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode two, Hooray for Hollywood, part two. It was written by Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan, just like part one was, and it was directed by Daniel Minahan. Hey, Caroline, what's going on? I was going to call you Dollface, but I, I realized <laughs> I probably shouldn't call you Dollface. A little too 1940s gangster. Right. We were just talking about slang, though, and so I can feel you that, you know, that that would have gotten into your brain. Nothing, sailor. Everything's going good on me. That's what I'm going to call you, sailor. That seems right, doesn't it? I think so. I think Is it so. Dollface and sailor? Does that feel right? Sure. Let's go with that. What's like an Italian, not negative... <laughs> <laughs> name that know. you would call that's like a good thing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I, th- this was the name that came to my. This is a family that would definitely have reveled in the mid-Atlantic accents. The family in the Wedding Crashers. Yeah. The Bradley Cooper. That was the name I was trying to come up with because that was. I remember being a ridiculous name that no one should call themselves, and you know he goes by Sack. He was Sack Lodge. Like sack? Sack, like <laughs> hacky sack or ball sack, yes. Right. Sack. Wow, sack that's, that's pretty that, bad. You remember because he tackles <laughs> at me, he's like, you got a sack lunch. <laughs> that's hilarious. You can call me Sack. No. <laughs> so here we are. We're at episode two of Hollywood. This really was a part two, don't you think? To me, this felt like a really much part of the of the season premiere. It's like Absolutely. For a second, the way that it started off, like really following a whole different group of characters, I was like, whoa, did I miss something? Like, did we go from Jack and then we like went it? No, we like blew right into having other characters. Not only did we end up meeting the other half of the core cast, you know, we met a lot of people in the first episode and we met a lot more uh, in this one, and they're all important. I think Mike, Mike, wait one second, wait one second. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is everything okay? The ice cream man's here. Oh my god. He's out front. I put money in the front drawer just for the next time he comes by, I don't miss him. So growing up in Queens, it was the Mr. Softy truck. Oh yeah. That shit was like catnip to the street kids. Same thing. <laughs> running out, you had that, you had the two, three dollar singles in your hand mm-hmm. with your sneakers on come like eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock, you know, when it was just starting to get dark, really, in the, in the, in the height of summer. <laughs> Fucking running out, big old fat kid taking my belly in a wheelbarrow, getting myself out to the curb. Woo, that was some good living. I missed a Mr. Softy truck. Unfortunate name, I, 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 it was one of those things that I, in my, the innocence of babes kind of thing. I, I never appreciated the irony of Mr. Softy not being a great thing as an adult. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's pretty funny, though. <laughs> that is. That is. Sorry to so freak much. you out like that. I had to just go run. My feet hurt from running in the street. <laughs> I listen the other day he came by and I heard him coming and I swung up at the door and I yelled ice cream man wait 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 and he went by so fast listen to this I scream for the children I run for my car keys I run my kids run out the front door they start chasing him I go on my car I start trying to chase him I meet up with the kids the kids are standing by this other van that says H-A-A-M on it and Jack goes I thought it was the I thought it was the the ice cream man, but it's just the ham truck, which for us is the like the area ministry clothing drive truck. Oh my god! And I was like, you followed the ham truck instead of the ice cream truck, and I was like, well, now I say it out loud, it doesn't sound so crazy. <laughs> You're 
You're so funny. Oh. You can't have your pudding if you don't eat your meat. You need the ham before you get your ice cream. There's some eating meat in this episode, mister. Let's get back to Hollywood. Sack approves. Let's go. This episode really complemented the first one because it introduced not only the second half of the core characters. We meet Raymond, Camille, uh, Henry Wilson. We learn about Roy's new name, Rock Hudson. Claire Wood, played by the fantastic Samara Weaving. I love her. You do? I do. I do. She was in Ready or Not last summer, an indie movie that got no fucking love. And it was probably my favorite movie other than Booksmart of 2019. It was the most fun I had in a movie theater last year. That's awesome. Holland Taylor plays Ellen Kincaid in this cohort of Avis, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and also big wig recruiter, talent recruiter, you know, kind of tied into that whole studio system. She and Dick Samuels, you know, they drop a lot of MGM related names. A lot of the Ace Studio stuff that we're seeing in the show is a uh, parody or inspired by MGM who was the big player in reality at this time. You know, all the great stars, uh, you know, well, we heard about her tonight, uh, Louise Rayner, uh, who beats out Anime Wong for that role. That was an MGM production, you know, The Good Earth. Yeah, so a lot of the Ace Studio stuff is MGM. This episode not only introduced cast, Caroline, but I thought it was really important because it stated strongly what I was calling the thesis statement for what this show is. There were two prominent places this episode talked about what Hollywood actually is about. The conversation with Archie and Raymond, definitely. When we meet Raymond Ainsley, this is Darren Chris. This is uh, the character who was great. It was crazy. He's probably one of the bigger name stars in the show, and we didn't get to meet him in, in uh, the first episode. He shows up on the scene, and, and he wants to pitch uh, Richard Dick Samuels at a studio, you know, the guy who greenlights green lights the pictures, that he wants to pitch him on making this Asian female actress-led movie. He wants to use Anime Wong. He wants to make this movie. Dick Samuels isn't having it. And his feeling is, and it goes into this whole conversation about The Good Earth and Anime Wong and how she had the best screen test anyone's ever seen. Did you feel like it was, like, indulgent for them to actually have us walk through anime's story, not just telling it, but actually watching the screen test all the way through to the other actress winning the award and her crying in the balcony. Did you feel like that was necessary? Did you like it? I loved it. It, it. it emotionally was affecting because I think the actress who played her, her name was uh, Michelle Krusek, I think did a fantastic job. I was as captivated, I think, as the people watching in the in the show, watching her screen test. I found it really compelling, which made it even more heartbreaking. But I I think it was also good to see it because I think it drove home the larger point that Raymond was trying to make or will make after this conversation. You didn't like it? You thought it was indulgent? I actually really liked it because I felt like there was other stories that they're telling us right now, specifically pegs, that we aren't getting a chance to see yet. And it gave us a little snip of what the rejection and the large scale embarrassment that and and just sadness and rejection that comes in Hollywood. And so I thought it was great to actually see that play out when we're trying to compare it to things like Peg's story, which is just something that we're told about, but we actually got to see this one. It's an Aesop's fables tale for what Hollywood is because coming out of that story, Raymond and Dick, they, they both heard the same story and their takeaways were completely different from it. So Dick Samuels' point was, Irving Thalberg, his point was, you need a white actress to make this film a hit. 
And it was. Louise Rayner won the Academy Award, and she really did win the Academy Award for that role of, it wasn't O-Chan, it was O-Lan, uh, was the character, a Chinese character in The Good Earth was cast by a white actress, even though you had this dynamic screen test by this Chinese actress. What a cool moment to have them actually show us the, the makeup portion where, you know, naturally the artist is trying to draw out into these like winged caricatures almost of being Chinese. Yeah. And and her actually wiping it off and saying, I am Chinese. Like, you don't need to do that to me. Very, very small moments like that that I think are going to help chip away at the bigger ideas here. And and so, so Dick makes the point that Thalberg was right. If you cast Anime Wong in that role, whether she whether you deserved it or not, your talent didn't matter, was Dick's point and Irving Thalberg's point. It was you put a Chinese lead actress in a 1937 film, that film doesn't go anywhere. You put a white actress playing a Chinese character in that film, it's, it's based on a great book, it, it had all the right bones, that's going to be a hit. And it was. It was Louise Rayner's second Academy Award before she was the age of 30. Huge. It was a big boon for her. But the, the idea is, the, I, the point that they're making, which I think is the real world position that Hollywood takes, is talent and merit only takes you so far and maybe not very far at all. Convenience and expediency and who's cockerel in the suck, who do you know and who are you banging matters a lot more than talent or lack of talent. Raymond stops him and says, you're the problem. I disagree with you. You don't understand the power you have. You are the people who make that system work. If you cast these way, these movies the way they should be cast, then the public will follow because you set what the taste is. That was the dreamland moment for me. Because if anyone as young and inexperienced as Raymond is goes into Dick Samuels' office and says that, before he's even done speaking, there's someone ushering him out of that office saying, get the fuck out in the real world. No? Yeah, I think that you don't get to talk like that. <laughs> you know, I, I actually know a studio head personally, and uh, you wouldn't talk to him like that. I could see when he's in his element. Now, he's a very jovial guy with me. He's a very grandfatherly like figure to me. So he would, you know, accept a lot from me in terms of joking. But I can't imagine sitting across a desk from him. I'm sure he's very, very intimidating. Right. But Raymond, Raymond doesn't back down. He, he's he's got the teeth and he's got the drive, and he's got this fire in his belly driven by him keeping his half-Asian side of his, of his heritage a secret that, that, that is really kind of driving him forward. And he doesn't just take it, and he says to him, he's like, if we change the way we do this, we can change the world. Let me ask you this, though, Mike. He actually, I felt, didn't hide the fact that he was half-Asian. In fact, I thought he mentioned it all the time. He, he mentioned it to people that he considered safe in his world. He didn't bring it up to Dick Samuels. He wasn't racing over to tell it to Avis or to Ellen Kincaid when they meet at the end of the episode. He's not going to go race to tell, you know, Rob Reiner as Ace Amberg when we meet him in a couple of episodes. Or not shame. That is his secret because he knows what it would do to his career in Hollywood. The same way Archie has to put on the, well, gee, Dick, uh, it's real nice to meet you. I can't wait to work with you. Thanks for writing my script. You know, he has to put on that voice because they, they get, these guys know the system that they're in. They know what real Hollywood is. They just know that they're getting this key to Oz where it's going to be all technicolor and they're going to have a chance to change it, though. Or they're determined to do that anyway. 
so so I think that put us into our Oz moment. That was when you heard the. I know, right? I was going to ask you, like, I was like, did I just hear things? Because I was watching this at like three in the morning. So I was thinking, did I just hear that? Or was there definitely like some sort of tinkling sounds, like the magic pixie dust just happened? And had I missed it in the first one? Were there any pixie dust moments in the first one that I missed? No. And I've watched the first one a couple times now, okay. not only to prep for this, but just because that's why I think it was so important that this was called part two. Because I think it, it hammers home the idea that this was really a continuation of the first episode. They were constrained to an hour episode system. They didn't get to state the point of the episode until they finished introducing all these characters. That it was going to be Raymond who, who took us to Oz in a very formal kind of way. Okay, okay. I'll go with that. Because before you had the tinkling sounds that I don't think either of us imagined, though maybe they didn't actually hear them on TV. <laughs> that would be so funny if someone came back and was like, there's no tinkling sounds, y'all. <laughs> yeah. There will definitely be a comment uh, within oh minutes God. of this posting. There's no tinkling sound. Did you even watch the episode? Oh, my God. You have Ernie bailing out Jack, and Jack is like, you know, fuck you, Ernie. I, I'm an actor. I have to have an upstanding, you know, reputation. I can't have a record. And Ernie's just like, dude, you're, you're insane. And he tells him. The hypocrisy of it all is what this town is built on. The idea that Hollywood sells the wholesome American image, the idyllic American lifestyle, but in fact, it's just built by rotten people. That's real Hollywood. That's black and white. The Wicked Witch coming to kill Toto in the black and white scene of Oz. It's all, it's all lies. You know, it's, it, when you walk through that door, you're not really going into a fancy house. You're just going into the back of a set. Right. It's all fake and bullshit. But <laughs> Raymond comes and we get the sound. Right. We totally. Did. So, do you feel that way? Do you feel like every single thing is fake? And do you feel like the, um, since we just were watching Westworld, I feel very much like the concept of the almighty dollar, like rules the roost. No matter what anyone thinks morally, ethically, whatever, you're stuck with doing what, what the dollars say you have to do. Do you feel like that? That has to be, or are we seeing any changes in Hollywood these days, especially with sort of like the ability to release on things like Netflix and stuff like that? Does everyone have to play this game still? I think it is changing, but I think it is changing very slowly. The increase in uh, persons of color diversity is changing. I think the accolades being given to women are changing. I think you're seeing larger and larger numbers of women in creative roles, you know, but, you know, in the director's chair, getting recognition for their writing, you know, creeping up the, the ladders at the studios. I think that's all changing. I think it's changing extremely slowly because money still rules. These changes, the, the movements toward, towards equality and inclusiveness will only continue in Hollywood as long as money continues to flow in to make it seem like that's what's supposed to happen. Dick Samuels in this scene with Raymond is, is, is real Hollywood. That's Hollywood today. How often do we talk about and does it come out that why did you cast this white person to play this ethnic role, even if it's a slight ethnic role? Could you not find one? Uh, you know, is, is true. And the, and the defense being to that, well, that's what people want to see. You know, no one wants to talk about it. But that's what people want to see. That's what Dick Samuels is saying here. Dick Samuels isn't being a racist. He's being a capitalist in this scene. Mm -hmm. He's being, I think, a pragmatist in this scene. Right. I feel that way. Like, that's, it's also the same thing with, like, fashion, where you hear a lot about that, like, well, you know, we're just trying to, like, give people what they want. And it's like, ugh, do they really think people want this? Like, give people what they actually want. And that, that like, plays into this 
a lot for me of people trying to guess what you want. I mean, I think that's the point of what Raymond's statement is. Yeah, what you're saying is true only because you don't offer them, you don't make them eat their veggies. So they are only going to eat the things that you, you feed them. Feed them something else and they will eat something else. They will consume what you give them, but you have to do it. They're not going to do it themselves. So change the way you do things and we'll change the world. You know, it's interesting. I, I think we talked about how there there was like a real Rat Pack vibe forming in the last episode, you know, with Archie and Jack. And, and I think in this episode, you get to see Ray add to that too. And presumably Camille is going to come along. When you think about the, the real Rat Pack and the time for it, and that they had Sammy Davis Jr. in the Rat Pack, it, it's interesting that in the real world, you had a semi-diverse Rat Pack you know, kind of roaming Hollywood that had all the power. The point, I guess the point is though, that they didn't really use that power to change the world, but it seems like Ray, Archie, Jack, Camille, whoever else joins these these young gun gangs, it feels like they really will use their power to, to change the world. I love that you brought up the Rat Pack because Frank Sinatra was, was mentioned when Jack was concerned about having a record and Ernie was like, please, you know, you ever heard of Frank Sinatra? I actually looked up what he was brought up on charges for, Mike, and it is the sexiest thing I ever heard. Did you know that? What's a hippie with it? What did Frank Sinatra get arrested for? Seduction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that is when <laughs> a man convinces an unmarried woman of good repute to engage in an inappropriate encounter with him with a general promise of marriage that is never going to happen. It's like the old bait and switch. Can you believe that? I love it. I love it. That's the meatloaf song. And do you know he was arrested a second time? Because later, it's discovered that that supposedly single woman was in fact married. Then he was charged with adultery. That's funny. That's true. Adultery used to be both people were guilty of adultery. That That is something I knew from way back when in a dusty textbook. But these were sexy, sexy times that you could get a record for seducing someone. Whoa, that's impressive. I, I would like to have that on my rap sheet. Big Brother was like the fuck police apparently back then. Whoa, so. that's Im- wow, that's a lot for them to try to keep track of. They, you know, they had all. There was a lot less going on back then. <laughs> I guess so. There's no internet. <laughs> so that's parts one and two, I think, of the thesis statement for this show. Right? You have Ernie giving us what real Hollywood is—that it's it's all bullshit. It's it's just a mountain of lies, and it's all built on hypocrisy. You have Raymond standing up to that idea of what Hollywood actually is and offering a different vision in the office with Dick Samuels. And then you have the final part of that in the bar conversation after Ray and Archie are going through the script for Peg. And they're talking about how uh, Archie came to write the script. And then he, you know, he, he tells him... I just had the idea that I wanted to take the story of Hollywood and give it a rewrite. And that, that is the thesis statement of the show, right? Absolutely. He doesn't want Ray to have to be a half Asian in the closet director. He just wants him to be a director. That he himself doesn't want to be a a, a quote unquote colored, we heard that word a lot, I think in this episode, writer. He just wants to be a writer. The same idea about how we talk about Schitt's Creek when we do uh, Without a Paddle. The idea that your your orientation shouldn't be a matter of discussion. It's you're, you're you're not a bisexual person, a queer person, a pansexual person. You're just a person. I, I think that's what they're trying to get at here, which which really struck me. And that is the world you want to live in, right? That's the world that you want to raise your kids in. That's the world that you want to live in yourself. 
or at least I do anyway. You know, I love that idea. I love the idea, and I am fully on board to watch these guys work towards trying to achieve that vision. I am very excited to see how they achieve that vision. Something we talked about in the last episode that I feel really, really matters. The, the journey and how we get to whatever they think is like idyllic, it matters to me. And I'm excited to see what kind of solutions they offer, where they're going to try to change things, like where's the little fork in the road where things could have gone differently. And I guess that's where the tinkling music comes in. Dreamland in the show means you're going to go get laid by a by a hot looking gas station attendant. But in, in a, a viewer sense, Dreamland is what the show, you know, that that opening sign should say Dreamland with them all standing on it. And by the way, did you catch the opening credits in this episode, which I, we did not get in the first episode? The climbing up of the Hollywood sign? The, uh, yeah, all the characters climbing up and then all standing on a different part of the Hollywood sign. Yes, I did catch that. And at first when it started, I was like, well, this is intriguing. <laughs> and then we like watched the whole thing and I was like, oh, that was like adorable. I kind of loved it. It, it reminded me of Mad Men a little bit. Yeah. I, the, oh, I remember it very well. The, the reverse of Mad Men, though, where he's falling from the window the entire time. And so you're watching his descent during the opening credits of Mad Men. This is them ascending. So I, I thought it was a nice kind of juxtaposition for what these young people are trying to do. You know, they're trying to give Hollywood a rewrite. I'm fully on board for that. It's all bullshit. It's all dreamland. But I love it. I mean, talk about escapist fantasy. I hope it sparks a conversation. But if nothing else, it's just a great way to retreat from the world is really burning right now kind of way. It's a very fun visual. And I definitely, you know, I got all those vibes that you were talking about in the last episode about La La Land. And mm -hmm. I think it's a, it was a really cool tie-in to, to Peg and that entire story that Archie was telling us. Yes, especially, I mean, yeah, that, that's a great segue into the, the topic of rejection, which I think was one of the big themes of this episode. A lot, a lot of talk about rejection and your public shame being out there. So, so why don't you take us through how, uh, how Archie came to write the Peg story? I think that it's really important for all of us audience members to remember how volatile these actors and really everyone in the industry. It helps that Archie is a writer for me because I would have only thought about it in terms of rejection for the actors. And when I watch this, I realize like directors are just as much trying out for their part as our writers and all of the other crew members I've got to imagine are in the same boat of being able to be cast aside. And so I felt like getting to hear the story of Peg and Whistle and Archie's kinship with her in terms of feeling like you're trying so hard and, and you and you are just getting pushed back down and you have some limited success, but it's like not really. And just to the point where it just it's too much for you. And ultimately, in case anyone was like getting a drink in the other room and didn't didn't catch this part, Peg actually opted to jump off of the Hollywood sign and kill herself. And that little nugget, as small as her story was, she was only 24 when she did this, even though she was only in Hollywood for such a short period of time. And that story was so long ago. It still resonates that power of rejection in this line of work. And I felt like it was great that they did extend it to all of the industry because it's just so intense. The scrutiny is so intense. What did you think about the fact that they chose Peg? The show is doing a really good job of showing struggles in a lot of different lights. It's not just a show uh, about uh, racial diversity and adversity. It's not a show just about sexual orientation and having to hide yourself or or sexism, genderism. Everyone's got a struggle. There are serious problems in the way the system plays out. And, and a lot of this is the system of Hollywood in a lot of ways 
is as American as apple pie. Yes, there are film industries all around the world, but Hollywood, the idea, what that represents is very much tied into the mystique of America. Because, like Ernie said, they're they're the ones who make the idea of what America is. That's that's what Ernie tells Jack in this in a jaded way. It's what Ray tells Dick in a positive way. Like we make the idea of what it is to be America. We can we can make it whatever we want. So I like that they're showing these struggles in all these different kinds of ways. And I thought Peg was a great tie-in to the broken system of Hollywood and how it inspired Archie to actually go and do something about it. To, to be a voice for himself and for Peg that she didn't have. It actually gives me a lot more respect for people in the industry in terms of, I think that a lot of people look at actors specifically as maybe being a little bit like, well, you know, you're just being told what words to say and you just go out there and you're just a pretty face. But at the end of the day, you have to have extreme fortitude. You have to be willing to be extremely persistent and put up with a lot, have a really thick skin to be able to make through this. And it's very easy to see how people turn to drinking or drugs or just general mischief and get kind of eccentric and odd because this is a very atypical life and they have to put up with a lot. These words should rattle in your brain and you can see where Archie sees himself in Peg. I am afraid, I am a coward, I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Peg and whistle. That was her suicide note that was found after she killed herself. Mm. Think about what that must have been like for this young woman. She's 24. Yeah. Like literally at the start of her life. This is what the system did to her. And the sad thing is it's not as if she had no successes. You know, she's no. not somebody who hadn't been cast in anything or anything like that. Like she was, you know, put put putting along and i don't know the level of rejection i think and what people are say to one another which i think we get a whole lot when we're doing the turning roy into rock scene the the actual breaking down of who you are and how you have to change completely in order to be even remotely acceptable to to the to hollywood world and then it's made out to be and for America as a whole, like we don't even want to see you unless you're tan, you know, like it's just that would really break people down. Yeah, it would. And it does. It does. It did the peg. It, it, it started to do it to Archie. And here's the dreamland. Here's the tinkling sound again, though. Archie took a stand. This young black guy said enough. I, I see myself in this woman and I'm going to write this story for her for myself as a as a form of catharsis but as also a form of like protest the conversation continues with ray where he, he confesses i don't think dick samuels knows i'm black and he's like what he's like ah, i you know i he, he gave the the white voice you know what was the movie from like uh, a hayseed <laughs> the there was a great movie uh pardon for the interruption where the guy the guy makes a really big killing as a uh, a telemarketer mm. And once he starts using a white voice, he like reaches this insane success kind of level. And that's what Archie has to do to Dick Samuels because he knows how the game is played. But in order to change the system, you have to get yourself inside the system. I thought it was amazing that through Jack's story and the introduction of the new characters, Camille and Claire, we got an opportunity to see the sort of like inner workings of what it would be to be a contract 
worker with a big studio and having the opportunity to go and do like accent classes. Mike, were you familiar with the Mid-Atlantic accent? I am so happy you brought up the Mid-Atlantic accent because that gets me to take uh, talk about my favorite segment of Welcome to Dreamland uh, Hollywood podcast is learn the lingo. I, I think everyone has an idea of what the Mid-Atlantic accent is. I think you've all heard it. Uh, well, especially from this time, Clark Gable was uh, was a big proponent of it. But you'll hear it, Fraser Crane and his brother speak with a Mid-Atlantic accent. Uh, anyone who really puts on airs as they speak, that comes off in a really sophisticated way, is probably doing a Mid-Atlantic accent. News reporters are trained to speak in a non-regional dialect. That I think a non-regional dialect is another way of saying that is the Mid-Atlantic accent. As Ellen Kincaid and Camille joke about, there is no Mid-Atlantic region. It is a completely fabricated uh, vernacular. It, it doesn't exist. You have a Texas twang to you. I have a New Yorker accent to me. You think? Did you ever think about the Mid-Atlantic accent? <laughs> I enjoyed it because I want an opportunity to see the inner workings. I think moments like the screen test with anime and having the opportunity to see classes like this, it just felt like it gives me a better idea of what someone is going through trying to get through the ranks. And I felt like the actual accent itself, I was questioning the way I say everything. I'm like, do I say duty or duty? Like I was questioning myself and I was laughing that I was trying was to copy really it. And I just thought it was so funny. I, you know, we have our voices out here all the time. And I do think about what my voice sounds like. I think I have a very odd accent. Sometimes it's very Southern. I say wicked. <laughs> I talk kind of like all over the board, I guess. But I know that there's people who really think hard about how they pronounce different words. And I think this was just fascinating that it didn't exist at all. I knew it sounded different from these movies, but I never would have been able to explain why. And they just explained why to me. I love it. The official definition of it is basically you take American English, you imbue with it parts of British English. It's, it's a blending of the two. The idea is to give you a sophistication. You know, it's, it's very much associated with, it's almost like a resume marker of having a theater experience and training. Not, not just experience, but actual sc schooling and training. It's very big in the Northeast. A lot of Ivy League schools will, you'll hear a lot of the Mid-Atlantic accent. What I think my grandmother probably would have called putting on airs. Yes, snooty. Yeah, like duty, where you put almost like a, it's like a sliding J sound in front of the U, you know, enthusiastically. Part of it is pronouncing all of the syllables, not dropping any of the vowels, which are things that a lot of different accents in America, especially people in New York don't say water. They say water. That makes me think of everything, though. I'm like, how do I say water? I think I say water. What is that like? Is that like you or is that like something else? Water. What, what, water, water, water. I say water, 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 water. water. I think that's the right <laughs> But then like, it made yeah. me think of how I say everything. So my big like tongue twister is Arnold Palmer. And I have to think about saying that so much when I just said it. Usually I'm like Ar Arnold Palmer. Like it's so hard for me to say that word. Why does it come up? Because I like a good Arnold Palmer. But I'm like, uh, I can't like I, I will pick something else on the menu because I don't want to say that word so bad. <laughs> That's terrible. During law school and I was starting to work and I was I was down by Wall Street and I was talking to a lot of people with a lot more money than me. I, I made a real conscious decision to try and not sound like I was from New York. And my greatest compliment I ever got, I was speaking to someone I did not know. She asked me on the phone, she said, uh, 
She said, you're like from the Midwest or, or thereabouts. Is that what I'm hearing? I said, no, no, I was born and raised in New York. I, I grew up in Queens. She said, you don't sound like it. I said, you have made my day. Because it's, it's an active thing that I try to not sound now like. Now, why? why? Why do you choose not to sound like where you're from? Because when I hear it, it bothers my ear. I think there are certain accents that are very soothing. I, I think there are certain accents, though, that are very harsh. And I, I think the New York accent can be very harsh. I, I feel very at home when I hear it. I was watching Bad Education on HBO. They are using some heavy Long Island accents in that in that movie. Hugh Jackman, but especially like Allison Janney. She's working the Long Island accent very hard. It felt like home, but it also was making me cringe when I was hearing it. Very interesting. I, I, I want to be an enigma because I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I see it as a way of controlling what people know about me. Whoa, crazy. So you're about, you're, you're kind of like a, like a script writer, if you will, of your own story. What if you could rewrite your own story, Mike? What, You'd what if we have Mike a rewrite? A different accent. <laughs> I know. And the problem is, the problem is I am horrible at doing like impressions and accents. So I can't successfully impersonate being from somewhere else. So the best I can do is try not to sound like I'm from somewhere. That's so funny. But uh, yeah, so it was a it was a great it was a great learn lingo. There were a couple more though, and I wanted to ask you about this one. Okay. When Henrietta she kind of honey traps Jack into taking out his pants, and she says, "Ah, you smell like Amarone." Mm -hmm. What the fuck is Amarone? I did not know what that word was. It is a perfume. It's actually like an Italian perfume, and uh, I it's so interesting to me because. I can't imagine wanting to exactly smell like this, but I thought this was very funny given the scenario that she was like pulling down his pants. It says it's a heady scent that recalls the sweetness and warmth of the sun barreled in wooden hues, which can be felt by looking down from the Amarone Hills full of vineyards perfumed of red grapes as far as the eyes see the horizon. <laughs> Having just yes. come off of Schitt's Creek, does that not sound like herb Ertlingers? <laughs> yes, definitely sounds like a fruit-based wine. Heady, a heady blend. <laughs> Crack me up. If they just said that was like a mouthful. Oh, my God. So they really sell this, you guys, in case you're wondering. If you want to buy it, $37. I found it online. I just thought this was like, wow, I kind of want to buy it. I'm just letting you guys know because I really want to see what it smells like. I'm a curious cat what Avis would smell like. I think she would smell rich. Guess that she smelled like, you know, uh, Chanel number no. five or uh, which I associate with wealth. I don't know why. I just I just do. No, oh, yeah, definitely. That's a very that's a very rich brand and very rich smell. White diamonds. No, no, no. Like You're Elizabeth oh, I Taylor. Know. <laughs> I know. That's like at like Walgreens. <laughs> I have a very clear image of like a, Those ads. a Vaseline, like yes. Vaseline on the lens yes. camera. Uh -huh. As she's like uh, gently caressing her cleavage. Very dynasty like. <laughs> yes. I wear white diamonds. Oh my God. And nothing else. <laughs> yes. Mm. Very funny. Come Come here, Blake. Oh, my God. And Blake definitely speaks with a mid-Atlantic accent, by the way. Funny. Well, since we're talking about Avis, let's move over for a second over to what do you think about the fallout that actually occurred from Jack coming in so late and having Henrietta getting so upset? I mean, I think it was inevitable. I don't think he was doing a terribly good job of hiding what he was doing. You know, all of a sudden you're coming home with bales of cash and you're you're not coming home 
until the next morning several times a week. What did you think about the idea that they actually had her like have an issue with the pregnancy and have the doctor try to like bluntly speak to him? I wrote down in my notes here, boundaries, uh, when the doctor tells him basically to, you know, keep his shit in his pants and stop fucking around. I thought that was so funny. I think it got through to Jack, but I thought it was really, really funny and and super inappropriate. But also refreshing, though, too. Like, part of me was kind of like, I mean, he doesn't know that Jack is doing it to make money. But I like that the doctor was kind of was kind of like, listen, you're going to kill your wife and your babies because of the stress you're putting on her. What, what is right? wrong with you? You know what? And so here's the funny thing that I'm, I'm going to keep equating this back over to, to Mad Men in a lot of ways. One of the scenes that have always stuck with me is when Joan goes to get birth control pills and she's talking to her doctor and her doctor's so like, I don't know, just like brash, but like also very like casual with her. And he's like, I'll give you the birth control pills, but this doesn't mean you become the town pump. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, who talks like that? Like, who would speak to someone like that? But then now I see this doctor, I'm like, oh, doctors of the time. (laughs) This is their bedside manner. The same reason that you had four out of five doctors saying that smoking was okay at this time in in our country, it's the same kind of doctors that are talking to their patients and their patients' husbands probably in the same I way. just would have thought during such like a prim and proper time that I would have considered this time. Like in a lot of ways, I'm just like, I can't believe the doctors talk to you like that. Like Ward Cleaver got talked to like that. <laughs> like I'm just like, wow. Listen to what you just oh said. Oh my God, though. what? That's what Ernie was trying to tell you at the beginning of this episode, Caroline. It's all bullshit. <laughs> it wasn't a prim and proper time. Right. People were fucking on the stairs, doggy style. <laughs> People were screwing around. People were wearing Amarone and getting blowjobs with it. Like, that's like real America. Very true. Then and now, Ward Cleaver, the Cleaver, that's bullshit. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. It was all a fantasy. Very so true. So that people who were making those things, you, you think you think uh, Ward Cleaver, what was his name? Was it Ward? Yeah. Like the dad, like he was going home probably banging three hookers <laughs> and, and drinking like a fifth of Jack every night. I'm, you know, like I'm sure he wasn't going home and living the TV lifestyle, but that's the bullshit that they're feeding us. It's that Mr. Brady was actually gay. <laughs> that's all you have to know. That's again wholesome image versus the reality of it. It's all hypocrisy and it's all built on a lie and a, a mountain of lies. So I love that you said that because I think that's a perfect example. You have this image in your head, but. This was probably much closer to the truth. So do you think that Jack continues to work at the gas station despite this warning from the doc? Yeah. <laughs> do you think he just figures out how to hide it better or what? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, despite the doc saying women always find out, which which ended up being the doctor's point, wasn't that, you, you know, you should be faithful to your wife. Oh, no, never. It was. It, no, it, that wasn't the lesson. The moral of his Aesop tale was not, and you should be faithful to your wife for you exchange vows and promise fidelity to each other. No, it was, she's going to find out and you're going to put stress on her and the twins. Right. <laughs> Crazy. We kind of approach this whole episode with themes. All right. So everyone is hiding in this episode. We've talked about, about Jack who's hiding his job and he gets busted by Henrietta and not doing a good job of hiding it. But people who are doing a good job of hiding it is you have Roy and Archie who are falling in love with each other. We learn Archie hasn't actually charged Roy uh, for anything yet. So, they're having, you know, relationship sex, basically. What do you think of their conversation in bed about being boyfriends uh, and about going out and, and being seen with each other? I think that it was very realistic of Archie to remind old Roy that, come on now, I mean, we just don't live during that time. This is not what we can do. We're not going to be boyfriends out in the world today. Like, just 
live in the now and enjoy it. And I think, I mean, it's going to sound really, really weird to say, I think it was sweet for him to not charge him for sex. <laughs> but I think it was. And I was like, oh, you know, you actually do have feelings for him. I, I think that there's something so beyond like just the sex for both of them in terms of they really connected in that first episode. You know, I, I'm I'm somebody who wants to try to be successful in this line of work and you are and you understand that whole scene with them running the lines together. I mean, that was so intimate and adorable and I loved it. I was so into it. I wrote relationship goals in my margin you, for you that did? scene. I did. Going, sitting down and running lines because that's not what they're supposed to be there for, right? They're supposed to be there for transactional sex. Right. And, and Roy got so giddy at the idea of the conversation. He was being super naive, and I'm glad that Archie reminded him the real, you know, the reality of it. Because remember, Archie is not just a gay guy or a black guy. He is a black gay guy. If he's left-handed, he's hit the tri the trifecta <laughs> of disrespect. <laughs> of challenges in our community. Before there was the left-handed binder. The nuns used to tie my father's left hand behind his back and whack him if he oh tried to write with Oh my God, that's- That was a story I grew up with my whole fucking Shut life. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. They, the nuns only wanted right-handed. Are you a right-handed person? Was, I am. Archie is always aware of of where he is and what he is doing because he has to be. Yeah, that's a huge portion that was in this about the concept of who has to be aware of their race and their circumstances and who can pass. And I think that that part about hiding in plain sight in many ways, uh, who you are and what your background is was really interesting and something that I think people do today. You know, they they choose who to tell what their backgrounds are and where they come from. Really, and I would and I would extend that for, to to class and to more than just the color of your skin or the shape of your eyes, but there's more to it about what you can pass for. I mean, we don't live in a society that has a caste system, but we really do. There are limits put upon us in perception. Maybe not an actual ability to, to maneuver up and down in this life, but there is a perception that people have of you that really does lock you into a certain kind of life for, for good or bad. Maybe not for everyone, but I think a lot of people experience the idea of ceilings put upon them. Do you know, I feel that way about like certain things because um, like tattoos, I, I always worry about having a tattoo that's visible because I had a friend who took a class that was about, it was a law enforcement class. The values of bodies actually go down when you're doing any type of compensation if it has a tattoo. And I just thought how weird we are that we do that. And when I think about like visible tattoos, I think my first thought is, well, I'd always wanna be able to go to like a fancy restaurant and stuff like that. So I really wouldn't wanna have like a big visible tattoo. Why am I saying that? Like that's like such a nonsense thing. But at the same time, it's not like I know in my head that, you know, there's more judgment when you're in different places. And if you want to be able to pass, then you just have to act and look a certain way. I had a cousin who was a bassist in a heavy metal band growing up. When they weren't on tour, he had a like a freelance job with for an accounting firm. He also had sleeve tattoos that ended at his wrist. And so he could never go to work in anything other than a full button down, full sleeve shirt because he couldn't reveal his sleeve tattoos. It was known it was not allowed for him to have that 
even though, you know, being a bassist and being a musician and living that lifestyle where having tattoos is very, you know, almost encouraged maybe even, uh, and part of that lifestyle, his, his waking hours, he had to live and conform to this other kind of, you know, this lifestyle that's appropriate, you know, uh, people who, Jewish people who want to be buried in Jewish, uh, cemeteries can't have tattoos. You, it's, it, you, you make yourself ineligible for Jewish burial with having, if you have tattoo. Yeah. People got, people got issues in, and what we can and cannot do in this life. A lot, a lot of limits placed upon us. For sure. So who else was hiding things? I, I'm glad you, you said who can pass because in that great conversation, and I think it was probably my favorite part of the episode, Raymond, you know, he mentions people like us and, uh, Archie kind of cocks his head. Like, what the fuck did you say? Right? He reveals again, he was half uh, Filipino. Uh, and you and I both had the same reaction when we talked beforehand. Is Darren Chris half Filipino? Because that's really funny. I hope he is. That was all I kept saying. I was like, please, 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 please. He's one of those actors who makes me happy when he comes on screen. Mm, he's always smiling. Yes. He is a lesson in if you smile at someone, they will smile back at you and everyone will feel better. But luckily, he is half Filipino. So good job on the show <laughs> for, for not whitewashing a character and then coming up with this half Asian because he doesn't look like it. And that's everyone's reaction. That's Archie's reaction. But the, the idea that he has to pass. He has to live, you know, hide in plain sight. And it's a secret burning desire of his that he doesn't reveal because like Archie knows he has to try not to reveal he's black. Uh, Ray understands he has to reveal he's not half Asian because it's going to torpedo his career. I think the most hiding is right now Roy. So, le so let's get to Roy going to find an a agent. And he has an interview uh, with an agent, a very well-known agent, an agent who existed in real life named Henry Wilson, played by Jim Parsons. What did you think of this scene with good old Hank Wilson <laughs> Uh, and the way he, his interview style. It was a lesson in taking control of the room. He was so matter of fact about everything that he said. The concept of getting a deeper voice by the next time you have a cold, go up into the mountains and scream until you actually break your vocal cords so that they could reheal and you'd have a deeper voice. Color me gobsmacked, my friend. I was like, what? Like that could actually work. People really do stuff like that. I believe they do. I know that people change the way that they look like it always fascinated me that Marilyn Monroe shaved her hairline because it was actually much lower, making her have like a much kind of like squattier face. But she like shaved her hairline back. So she looked like she had much more of an oval face. I always thought that was the most odd thing I've ever heard in my life. I was so shocked. When we got to the part where he was like, and now I'm gonna have to suck your cock. I never reached for the clicker during like watching shows like this. I'm fine. I It doesn't bother me at all. The sex scenes, everything, whatever. When he said that, it came so out of the blue for me. I like lunged for the clicker. It was three in the morning. No one was sitting there, <laughs> but I turned down the sound. <laughs> I think that was just like so crazy. What did you think of old Henry? Would you sign on the dotted line and go into the little room? I don't know because I, I, I mean, no way you have to say yes or no. Everybody could say, I don't know. Well, no, I'm going to, I'm going to talk through this and then I'll give an answer. Cause I read up a little bit about Henry and, and his clients and his work and stuff. And he, he really, Rock Hudson was, was one of his clients because of his, his proclivities were known about, uh, uh sleeping with clients. What we see here is maybe not an exact thing that happened with Rock Hudson per se, but seems to be a part of his working way. The way he says, it's just my thing. 
like real matter of fact, like all part of business, the same way that he was telling me he had to change his name, he had to change his physique, he had to, you know, take the acting lessons, he had to go change his voice. I also have to suck your cock. It was, it's just part of the transaction. And, and so much of the show is about the transaction. There's no feeling behind so much of the seedier aspects of this, right? It's not personal. It's just business. Did I, if I wanted to be famous, if I wanted to, uh, to be a leading man, yeah, I let him suck my cock. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, well, I'm secure in my manhood and, you know, whatever. It's it's what it's what you have. Well, and here's to do. the thing. He's not a sh- he's not a straight guy. It's not maybe as bad as it could be. Mm. Anyone pressuring you to have sex in any way doesn't matter whether or not you would be attracted to that person in other situations. The power dynamic sure. is obviously wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, what you said was, was really interesting because because Henry says that to, to Roy right off the bat. As soon as Roy is kind of like hemming and hawing, he's like, come on. You know, I saw you swishing your hips when you came in here. So he's making the same point you are. It, the idea of you, it's not like I'm asking you to betray your heterosexuality. I'm just telling you if you want to open the doors to paradise, it goes through my mouth. I guess the other thing, though, that I have an issue with, though, with that, with like the standpoint of like maybe him even being like a little bit hesitant is only just that we've already established that he was willing to pull up to a gas station where he knows no one and accept whomever to do whatever to him. So then in that case, it's not like you're coming in with a person who's like, I've only been with someone who I loved and had this exciting, important, you know, connection with. No, he's had anonymous sex before. So it's got to be different. But now he may have feelings for Archie, though. So I, the, I had two feelings for why he reacted with the hesitation he did. One, it is a disconcerting thing. Even even if you're down to clown always and you don't really care who it's with, the idea that you have to do it in order to get to the next yeah. level is disconcerting. Uh, absolutely, right? absolutely. It's one thing. It's one thing if you see Henry Wilson in a bar and and you and you let him suck your dick. It's another thing when Henry Wilson says, you you need to let me suck your dick if you want me to take you on as a client and make you famous. That's a very different- It definitely feels like, what's the next step? Like, if I do this, where are you going to push me next? That's how I would feel. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of discussion of what kind of openings oh my. once you go this step, you yeah. know? Uh, but I think the other part was, though, too, remember, this is coming right off the scene where he's having the great night with Archie. You know, they they had sex and then they had a discussion about their relationship and, and what their relationship even is. You know, whether or not they could be at Molly houses together or out in the public. And then they read lines together. Uh, you know, so he's flush with the oxytocin of love with Archie, with Archie. So he's had anonymous sex before, obviously. But also maybe that's changed now. Maybe he feels actual feelings for this guy and so maybe it's different now on top of the fact that it's a weird power dynamic absolutely i mean i can't imagine really being in a situation where someone just snapped their fingers and said all right take your pants off like it really wouldn't matter even if i was attracted to that person i think i would be like (laughs) like that you kind of freaked me out so this is a, a book by richard barrios called screened out playing gay in hollywood from edison to stonewall so richard barrios writes in this book talent agent henry wilson had a singular knack for discovering and renaming young actors whose visual appeal transcended any lack of ability, which we heard Roy did not do great on his screen test, kind of like Jack did. And, you know, it, it, but again, we said, like we said at the top of this episode, talent for these guys doesn't matter as much as who they're fucking. Barrios goes on. He says, under his tutelage, Robert Mosley became Guy Madison. Orison Whipple Hungerford Jr. was renamed Ty Harden. 
Arthur Gellion was changed to Tab Hunter. Roy Scher turned into Rock Hudson. Henry Wilson is credited with creating the what they called the beefcake craze. The idea of hunky men who maybe couldn't read well or remember lines well or act particularly well, but goddamn, they looked good, you know, <laughs> and women swoon. The guy guys want to be and the guy girls want to be with. Absolutely. And I'd love his name to be Rock, man. Yeah, for sure. I loved, I loved that scene because Jim Parsons has a great, he has a great patter to how he speaks. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea if this is how really Henry Wilson spoke, but the dialogue for him was so perfect for Sheldon Cooper to, to break down a human being into the parts like it's just did. so matter of fact like this is what you have to do this is just, it just like sucking just like i have to suck I, your I cock it's could just business. not believe when he said honest to god i was like whoa <laughs> it's and the setup is great because he's 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 moving around his office as he's he's continuing to give the the requirements and again it's it's speech this was not the first time he's given a speech it was all so practical he has so a polished. special room <laughs> Yeah, and I love how he flings the door open and stands there, and he's like, eh, and now we got one more thing to do before we sign on the dotted oh line. Gosh. So you got to sign somewhere else. Oy. Another character grouping that we had that was hiding things were Camille and Raymond. I was surprised to see them as a couple, not for the interracial part of it all. I don't know. Like, I didn't see it coming for some reason. When we got a chance to see them interacting um, actually at home, made me really happy. The stuff that I saw in public, I was like, that made me really sad to, to kind of feel like you can't be looking over at each other. You can't be talking to each other and joking with each other. All that makes me sad. My best friend is in an interracial marriage. And every time that I hear anything like looking down on that or, or questioning that, I'm always ruffled. So for me, it was personal. And I was like, oh, God, seeing them at home, Camille, sexy AF. The part where she is teasing him and he goes, get over here, and he grabs her. Oh my God, yes, 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 yes. I was like dancing around like, <laughs> like that's how you do it, man. <laughs> the show is not porno sexy. The show is seductive sexy. That was a great example of that. And, but then it was also great how that scene bled into Jack's face. So you go from, you know, Camille and Raymond having this seductive sex scene and she lets out this moan and oh boy he grabs her and puts her on top of him and she lets out like a little moan it made all of the hair on my body stand up (laughs) and then and then it morphs from the back of her head and raymond's face into jack's face and the back of the girl that he's banging currently at that second and it was such good editing because you could tell immediately it went from seductive loving sex to this transactional would you call it a frame wipe mike i would call it a fuck wipe like so much (laughs) so much uh, hotter it was almost it actually reminded me of the michael jackson video oh yeah 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 i know just what you're talking about but there there was some really painful stuff though too so i love the camille and raymond at home the reveal to archie that you're dating a sister (laughs) and raymond was kind of like smiling about it but it was also he's also kind of over it he it's not my black girlfriend it's just my girlfriend hey let me ask you this about raymond and camille since we did get to see them at home that was a lovely home and these are like two brand new up and coming people who like don't have any money or any kind of success that home was very nice. When we see other people, we see them in little teeny studio apartments and stuff like that. 
was that odd? Are we supposed to start reading into like, somebody's got money here. Somebody's coming from something. I, I don't know why. From the second he walked on the screen at the in his first scene, something said to me that Raymond Ainsley has money. Though he's new to this business and industry, something about him said that he is comfortable with money. He's not awkward like Jack. When Jack is in the commissary and, and Ellen Kincaid runs into him, he's awkward as fuck. He does not belong in the commissary <laughs> right. there. Raymond isn't. There's something when, when you come from money and you have money and you have been around money, there is a comfort level that comes with that that you can't fake or at least you can't fake well. And Raymond seemed very comfortable with it. Not everyone could talk back to Dick Samuels. Someone who was idealist, but also comfortable t talking truth to power, it can do that. The whole vibe, the whole episode told me money is not- an And that house should it. just push that home for you. But I'm just telling you, no, ain't nobody living in a house like that of these up and comers. Uh, let's talk about Camille Washington real quick though, because I, I, I don't really know Laura Harrier well, um, but I feel like we should. And, and I want to follow her because I, I think she was pretty dynamic in here. Because again, much like Archie is playing this, this black screenwriter in a time when that wasn't heard of, I can't imagine there was a whole, other than the Hattie McDaniel, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you play it, play it like Hattie. Yeah. Other than that, a young, beautiful black actress in the 1940s seems like uh, like a fish out of water kind of story. And I thought it was interesting in the dialect class where the one classmate is swooning to Claire, she's the prettiest girl in here. She's going to be a movie star. And Claire is like, bitch, psst, please. Right. But I thought that was an interesting thing, though, that it was so, I hate using the word woke, but the idea that so, uh, a, a rival, right? I mean, there all these actresses that are rivals of each other would acknowledge that that Camille was beautiful and was a movie star in the making. A lot of women are beautiful. Do women readily, when they see each other as rivals, readily admit that the other woman is beautiful? I think that Betsy, the woman who said it, does not feel she's a rival of Camille's. She's, she's at a different echelon. Claire is the rival of Camille's and Claire did not right. agree with her. She said, oh, not everyone, as if Betsy's so pretty, you know, to be like, oh, no, right. you like that kind of thing. No, they're no, I don't think Betsy thinks she's a rival of Camille's at all. I think it's definitely only Claire. I actually I wrote rivals with several underscores, rival versus uh, Claire versus oh, Camille. for Claire. sure. So Camille gets pulled out of the dialect class by Ellen Kincaid, her teacher because she's going to do a, a reading, right? She's, she's going to a soundstage. She's going to be reading with uh, Mira Sorvino playing Jean Crandall, who is not a real actress, as it turns out, playing a maid in a classic stereotypical kind of, you know, maid costume. She's serving tea and she does a great job. She does her lines. It's very simple, you know, nothing flashy. She, she comes in, would you like, I think it was tea or coffee. And Jean Crandall is in full, you know, yes, darling, I'll do the coffee, ah, you know, that kind of, you know, like, my husband's dead and I've got his fortune. Ah. Uh, and then they make her take it back again. And the, the producer director comes over and says, you know, play more like Caddy, play a little funnier, you know, make us laugh a little bit. It, it, it hurt my heart. The, the idea that the black actress has to yuck it up. It, it's just, it hurt my heart. And she does it because she wants the work, but it really, really it made me sad. What did you think of that whole scene? It was really clever of them to put it directly after the dialect class, where she is pointed out to be one of the most beautiful. She's clearly the most poised. She's well-spoken. And then once she gets in front of the camera, she's directed to act in like the fool's role. Right. 
watching her like backstage and her shoulders just kind of like like went down and I was like the amount of times when we have seen in in only a short period of time individual people be asked to be less than they are or kind of take down their standards has just been like repeated think of I think every single one of our characters has been asked to you know lower your standards of what you're willing to do and who you really are it's heartbreaking and and that was terrible except for Jack who is the stereotypical pretty white boy who is being elevated who has no talent and is being elevated despite that he was asked to lower his standards by Ernie and he said I'm married I'm faithful all that kind of stuff and he was asked to lower his standards in order to be successful and it just kind of it's just a continuation of that as far as I'm concerned in different ways with the same with Raymond yes we'll consider doing doing what you want to do however you have to take some script that you don't know anything about and do it first like just continuously taking where you set this high bar of something original that you you really want to do that you have nope you got to lower your you got to go do with some studio script. It's just a consistent taking you down a notch, you know? And that's an interesting read on it too, because Jack has been the outlier. What what does Jack represent in giving Hollywood a rewrite? You know, you could see you could see where Camille is, you could see where Raymond's coming from, you could see where Archie is coming from. What what where where is Jack's role in the rat pack? What does he represent as far as changing the way the system is and works? And maybe his point is being forced to do this thing that he would never have actually done. I, I believe that he loves Henrietta. I don't believe he would willingly cheat on her other than the one time in Italy with a girl. Maybe that's his point is w what Hollywood demands you sacrifice in order to continue to be able to live there and make a living and support yourself and, and try and go for your dreams. That, that the cost it exacted to reach your dreams is, is too high, that it may cost you your family. Do you think that in this story, given that it's a rewrite and given that it's reimagined Hollywood, do each of the characters that we've met so far have to have a quote unquote storybook happy ending? Does Jack maybe leave Hollywood and head back with Henrietta and the twins to go have a successful life elsewhere? Is that a happy ending for him? Do each of these people have to be successful in the industry in order for this to be a happy Hollywood ending? Uh, no, no, as long as the journey is an honest one. As long as the destination that they reach makes sense for the journey that they have. Because, yeah, we're in dreamland, right? When when we hear the tinkling sound and it turns to technicolor and we're on the yellow brick road, it is, it is almost high fantasy. As long as they continue to treat that honestly and then take it to whatever the conclusion is for wherever they get in the story. And, you know, they don't necessarily need to finish the story this season either. Seven episodes is kind of a weird number. No, I don't think they need happy endings for it to be convincing. I think they just need it to make sense for the journey that they put them on. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes I sense. I think it does. I'm just wondering if, I, I wonder how they will do this because is it fantasy to the point that every single one of them become big stars in their own respected you know, sliver of the industry? Is that what Dreamland will end up being? And And is there any amount of option to opt out is it dreamy for an actor to think that they could do something for a little while and then successfully exit without you know disgrace or some huge horrible thing happening i just wonder and do we think it would be cheesy to have the entire cast be successful in their field no i mean no and i wouldn't be surprised if they do because we never get to see happy endings like that the idea that everyone everyone gets to where they want to go 
you know, Kabil gets the leading lady role. Jack gets a leading man role and doesn't have to continue to sell himself in order to do it. Archie gets to write movies and get paid what he's worth and not have to hide his color. And Raymond gets to make his his anime Wong movie. I brought up my question when it has to do with Jack because they've established that Jack has no talent. The other people do have legitimate talent. Camille does, Raymond does, Archie does. So then right. in that case, they deserve to have had the chance to be successful. Is it a reimagined Hollywood for the white guy with no talent to become successful? Well, that was the point that I was making before when you were talking about the sacrifices. Jack, professionally, is is the opposite of that. He is what he is what real Hollywood is like, where the white guy gets the role with no talent because he looks good. I mean, that was essentially what Henry was telling Roy uh, or Rock. You know, you, you have no talent, but you look good. If if only Jack was willing to have Henry suck his cock, he would be famous, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to figure out so, whether this story wants to rewrite that or not. Do they want to rewrite it? Does the white guy have a role in a reimagined Hollywood? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't or is know there either. room for I mean, everyone? Is that kind of the reimagine that everyone can make it, including the white guy, including, you know, people of all different races, religions, creeds, whatnot? I mean, is that it? Because I'm just curious. I'm, I'm f- just purely curious about whether or not the white guy with no talent has to fail. And maybe it could be a happy thing in terms of like he chooses his marriage and his family and living a different life outside of the spotlight. And that's considered successful. That can still be okay. That can still be a happy ending. What is going to be the message about Jack when they've so clearly established that he doesn't have what it takes when everyone else has it, but has fictitious boundaries in front of them. It was funny you asked at the beginning of this episode when we were talking about Anime Wong and was it important to show her screen test? I think it, it was really useful to show it because then when we see Jack's screen test, just by comparison, I mean, I think you would understand it was a very bad screen test on its own two mm-hmm. legs. But when you compare it to the work that she's doing, the motherfucker turns to, uh, his back to the I camera. Know. And yells at her. He like, was yelling at her. That's tr- that's exactly what I wrote in my notes is he's yelling at her the whole time. And then literally <laughs> they go, he's yelling at the poor girl the whole time. And I was like, I wrote the same thing. When, when, when he's kind of to the side, but then he in, makes a conscious choice to step in front of her, giving his entire back to the camera. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> but so, well, let, let's get to that. The Jack uh, really quick. This is the last thing I think we have to talk about in the episode is so Jack is still carrying on with Avis. You know, Avis takes him to the Bugsy Seagull estate sale, which I thought was so funny <laughs> that she ends up paying $3,000 to get back her own suit. I thought it was hilarious, was too. <laughs> How hot was that business when she realizes that he's got the screen test at Ace Studios and she says to him, you take care of Mama tonight and tomorrow Mama will take care of you. Mm, Patty, <laughs> Patty girl, give me a call. Oh, very, very sassy. I thought it was and, awesome and, and, and oh. very realistic as to like how that would have went down. So not just seductive. She could have been brought up on charges. It's, Ma, it's Mama Mabel, right? In Chicago, yeah. where she's got the whole song about you take care of mama, mama takes care yeah. of you. That's what came to my yeah. mind. But it was quickly, any thought of anything else was quickly erased in that hot, <laughs> over the banister, doggy, doggy style oh scene. Because I don't know. Patty was given, it was, oof. She was saying all the right things. Right? And then we get the view of Oscar watching mm-hmm. on. Shit, that was hot. I really like that. 
what you would do to get the Oscar, right? What you would do, what you would put up with, what you would uh, engage in, right? Mama takes care of him by putting her cohort, Ellen Kincaid, on his on his team, right? He he she strong arms Dick Samuels into giving Jack a contract because that that's the network and that's you know merit doesn't matter, right? I said that earlier. Merit doesn't matter here for people like Jack. Just who you know and who you're banging. So fine. So we get that. We get to the end of the episode. We have the the formation of the Rat Pack. We have Ray. We have Archie. We have Jack. And they run into Ellen and Avis coming out of the building. Ellen sees Archie and says, "You're colored," and she gives him a big kiss and she says, "I love it." And that's that's the dreamland, right? Mm-hmm. That's when you get the little like tinkling music. Yeah, tink tink tink. <laughs> right, that's the magical moment. Avis gives him a look mm-hmm. that was all sorts of trouble. I agree. Very questionable there. Very questionable. I don't know that Avis is going to be on board for all this. She might actually prove to be a foil. I mean, she, you know, clearly she's into Jack. She's going to bat for him. Ooh, let me say this. What if Jack sacrifices himself? and somehow reveals Avis in some way because Avis is going to do something to hurt Archie and like sacrifices himself and knowingly his own career to save Archie's is that a successful ending for Jack? Oh sure. I mean that's that's the that's the most noble self-sacrifice for your friend. That's a rewrite. Like like to actually like lay down for your friend in Hollywood and not take the advantage. I'm I'm so happy you said that because that is a great ending for him. And that look that Avis gives him really put all sorts of red alarm bells on that this is going to be an uphill climb for Archie. That Ace finding out he's black it may not be the only obstacle that he has to look for in Dick Samuels finding out that he's black. You know, Avis knows now. And that may spell all sorts of problems. Well, and Avis seems to have her own, you know, turned up nose opinion about that. That, you know, not just that she knows, but that she seems to care and not in a good way. And the irony of it being, I mean, she was the one who was loudly lamenting being bounced out of the business for looking too Jewy. For for her looks costing her career. Mm-hmm. For her to be the character that has that apprehension. Because right now... We haven't seen anyone speak ill to Archie or treat him in any way. We've seen him in public now. We've seen him in restaurants. There's no boy talk. There's no you have to go use that bathroom talk. There's none of that kind of racism that was still in the 1940s. You know, there were separate fountains still. The fact that another. Camille was was eating, you know, in the same area and all that kind of stuff, like no, no different. You right. know, yeah, you're right. That was all omitted. That's all the that look from Avis, though. That was some real fucking Hollywood, I felt like, creeping back in at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. You know, the dream is over and we're all waking up. And- well, that's what I'm going with as what I could foresee as the best Jack happy ending. Because I do not think, with his lack of talent, I do not think he deserves to go and become the leading man. I really don't. So I'm curious to see what's going to end up happening. I mean, Henrietta was getting ready to throw him out when she had the, the mm-hmm. pains. So that is unresolved. There's still a lot of people who need to meet here. Right? Roy has to come out as Rock. He has to probably suppress his homosexuality in a very forceful way. So how is that going to affect his relationship with Archie? Avis and Jack and Archie. There's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of stuff brewing here. And I'm super episode. excited that they put a very uh, clever weaving of why these all of these people would be in on the same project. When you have Peg's story being something that they're all focused in on, I'm like, okay, all right, this makes sense. We're actually combining them all together now. This will be fun to be on that set. I'm looking forward to that. Right. You have Camille and Claire because Claire comes up to Jack and says, I'm going out for the role of Peg. Mm-hmm. You should go out because I hear there's like a love interest being cast, right? 
you know Camille is going to go for that lead role too. So Claire and Camille are on a collision course to each other for, for this this young starlet role. It should be very good. I'm looking forward to episode three, and I can't believe we're already like hinting at like, you know, knocking on the door of midway through this because it feels like we just started. I just met everybody and I already feel like we're at three. Right. It feels like it's over so quick. I'll be very eager to see how this works out. This series should not be on Netflix. Yes, I'm very much enjoying the sex. I am enjoying the nudity. I like that. I am a pig. I like dirty language, but this show is made in a classic broadcast TV show of the week. I don't want to autoplay. I don't want to binge the show. It was completely flaccid having him be arrested at the end of episode one, knowing that you were going to have the resolution in 30 seconds because of the mm -hmm. autoplay. That is how cable and broadcast TV is made. And it worked. And it made me, I was totally in on it. But then I realized, well, if, if, I, if I do nothing in 20 seconds, I'm going to have the answer here. That made me sad. I want to savor this show. And I'm glad we're doing these episodes because I'm not watching it. Me either. It's giving me a chance to enjoy it as if and how it should have been like on FX or on HBO. Yeah. So I don't know how you feel about that. No, but. I agree. I'm wholeheartedly. I'm only watching it one at a time and very much um, I'm happy that we're giving it a couple days in between. Yeah, I'm just enjoying it. I'm enjoying looking up things and finding out more about Hollywood during that time and the individual stars that they're mm -hmm. mentioning. I think it's great. The one comment that I know we were talking about in the last episode that I do want to like circle back to was that whole idea of is it dangerous to be playing with real people and real situations and be putting in possible not so much real information. It's something that's still kind of nagging at me. And I'm I'm really watching it with a with a serious eye about how do I feel about them taking real people with real reputations and perhaps giving two thirds of the info being absolutely correct and that last third being like, mm, was it or wasn't it? Or is this reimagined or I'm not so sure. The tinkling sound is kind of their savior in terms of like reminding people that this isn't the way it really was. This isn't the way it would have gone down. And that's super important because I think, especially in our day and age, it's very dangerous to put forth the idea of, well, it, it really wasn't bad for people of color or people uh, yeah. or women, or you have a generation right now who some people believe the Holocaust did not exist. When you feed information through pop culture, that's wrong in terms of just factual. Even when you say, hey, this is a rewrite and isn't it fun, you risk giving people the wrong impression that the struggle isn't real. If they don't bother to do their homework, they don't know any better. And people are pretty willing to be spoon-fed information that may or may not be true. So I'm still watching and paying attention to that aspect of it, and and I'm hoping that as we keep going, I feel like more and more like, okay, all right, it seems very clear what they're doing. And the tinkling sound helped. I think that that was a good ad. If you're paying attention, I think it was hard to miss that conversation as signifying, you know, again, using the Wizard of Oz that we're, we're beating to death here. But I think it was a real moment of going from black and white into Technicolor. The idea that you have entered this, this revisionist history moment. It was there. And I think it does help. Part of my judgment of the show is going to be how they treat real characters. I mean, Rock Hudson is a very real person, and now we know he is a core character in the show. It's going to be interesting to see how they treat him and how they did and how they depict him, uh, and it, and ultimately, it's going to affect how I look at the show and review the show critically when it's all said and mm -hmm. done. Uh, but for right now, I'm loving it. Right, right now, I really enjoy 
the fine line that they are walking. I think they're doing a very good, nimble job at doing it. I don't think anyone is being played to to be a mockery or, or be a parody or less than, showing a, an alternative history that could have been while not downplaying the severity of what it is and was. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.